The following program was pre-recorded. Welcome to Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists and community builders every weeknight at 6. I'm Tamrika Khtisiashvili, and in our virtual studio tonight with me is my fellow co-host. I'm Rashawn Leek, and Roundtable Tuesdays is when Tamrika and I ask a central question, then invite folks to come on and talk about it. Tonight, we're passing the mic to members of the Asian American community right here in Utah. So coming up, we've got a COVID diary story featuring Asian Americans in Utah sharing their experiences as hate crimes and hate speech targeting them are on the rise. And then we'll unpack it even more with Edmund Fong, University of Utah Associate Professor, Ethnic Studies, Political Science Department, Emilio Manuel Camus, OCA Asian Pacific Islanders American Advocates Utah, and Zi Min Zhao, Director, Salt Lake County Mayor's Office for New Americans, and Lehua Kono, External Vice President, Asian American Student Association. So tonight we're getting right to it with Tamrika's latest entry in the COVID Diary series. So you're going to hear from a Korean American who's lived here 11 years, but only wanted to use his first name for fear of reprisal. Then there's your buddy DJ Chu Rishan. Um, also, yeah, also a first year grad student who also works at a local restaurant and a tattoo shop. There's a broadcaster, an advocate, a district attorney, and a mayor. They'll share their lived experiences, as well as prosecuting hate crimes and the view from a mayor's office. This is COVID Diaries, the Asian American experience in Utah. For this episode of COVID Diaries, we're talking about Asian American Pacific Islander communities of Utah. As we watch the horrific headlines nationally on hate crimes toward those communities rise, sometimes the sentiment here in Utah has been and continues to be that we are immune to it. Here's Sherry Wood. Mayor of South Salt Lake, almost doubling in percentage of Asian population of any other city in the state. I reached out to our police chief to try to understand just in case there's information coming in other areas of the city. We haven't seen an increase in hate crimes that are being reported by Asian Pacific or Asian Americans, but it's also possible that these crimes are underreported. Considering such a huge spike nationally, are you surprised by that? I can't really say. I do know that we stand in solidarity and support of all of our underrepresented communities, um, whether that has helped them feel a part of our community or maybe our community isn't experiencing the same thing that's going on nationally uh, because we do have a very welcoming community that's used to being very diverse and and that we deeply care about the safety and well-being of everyone who lives, works, and worships here. Unfortunately, hate is alive and well here in our Beehive State. This past week, local Asian-owned restaurants and number of Asian-American residents experienced threatening voicemails, notes left under their residential doors, letters of hate received in the mail, For those that think those letters are single, out-of-the-blue incidents and don't believe that hate crimes happen here regularly, I reached out to some of the local Asian-American community members about their personal experiences this past year. Back in May, about you know, a month and a half into lockdown. Jenny Hong is a first-year graduate student. She's Korean-American, born and raised in Salt Lake City. I was actually driving to the pharmacy, pulled up to a traffic light, and had, I had my window down, and there was actually a guy that pulled up next to me 
Um, and he started yelling at me through the car window. And he's like, hey, hey, China, what do you have to say about the coronavirus? It always kind of catches you off guard. You always think, oh, I would have said this or done this in retrospect. But in the moment, I just kind of felt a sense of fear. So I just kind of didn't make eye contact and rolled my window up. And then the light turned green. And then I kind of had to pull over and just kind of process what had happened. I would say that I experienced that growing up when kids would tease me and say, like, go back to your country, or even in the service industry when you have customers who genuinely think they're paying you a compliment when they tell you your English is good. I'm like, well, why wouldn't it be? I was born here, you know? And so the idea of being a perpetual foreigner isn't anything new, but I do feel like the backdrop of COVID, it's um, that much more toxic and harmful. This is Paul. Paul is also a Korean-American who has lived in Salt Lake over 10 years now. I was with my kids in Sugar House last August, and um, they were in the park, and I went for a run. And a truck um, swerved into me and revved its engine, and they were like, get the fag in the hat, get the fag in the hat. And just two weeks ago on a Sunday, as I was driving home, a woman came out right out against the sidewalk and threw rocks at my van as I drove by on State Street and shouting at me, go home. I thought, I I am trying to get home. (laughs) You know, a year and a half ago, I was in one of our wonderful brew pubs with a bunch of friends and this drunk guy came up and sat kind of with us and was staring at me and wouldn't stop staring and finally said, he said, I'm from the South. I just moved here from Georgia. I said, oh, great, you know, welcome to Salt Lake. And he said, we hate you people. We, we can't stand you people. And thank goodness the people that I was with were wonderful and stepped in and asked him to leave. And he ended up getting kicked out of the bar. What kind of food are you eating? Stephanie Wynn is half Vietnamese and half African-American woman born and raised in Utah. Why does your eyes look like that? Why do you eat with chopsticks? Do you eat dogs? Do you eat cats? Being raised, I was always cautious by my family about, just like African-American families, being cautious about getting, um, putting too much spotlight on yourself or making sure that you're in a good standing space to be safe. But there, that, that fear was already there outside of COVID to not attract any attention to yourself because of uh, your racial identity. Rosie Nguyen, the anchor of 7 p.m. newscast on the ABC News here in Utah, was born and raised in Salt Lake City. She is Vietnamese-American. My family, we have light respiratory struggles when it comes to really, really bad air days. And it's tough because for us on those days, we just, we cough, right? We clear our throats, we have stuffy nose. And if we're out in public, it's like we're scared to just cough or clear our throats, or like make a sniffling noise with our nose because the looks that we get. I remember standing in line at the grocery store to check out, and there was a woman that was standing two feet, and then there was a, another woman standing two feet in front of me. Bad air day. And I remember like just <clears throat> clearing my throat, getting that phlegm out of my throat. And I remember her turning around, looking at me, and then moving to a different line. Sadly, those sentiments often start early on. Here's Rosie again talking about some of her childhood memories in Utah. Growing up, there were all these microaggressions that came towards me. My mom used to pack me lunch. I love my mom's food. Who doesn't love their mom's food? And one time, I was so hungry that I ate it before I got to school. I opened it on the school bus. I just thought, oh, I'm so hungry today. I'm just going to open the Tupperware and just have a bite on the school bus. And I remember all the kids around me just said, something stinks. 
something stinks on the school bus. And then they started talking like, where's that smell coming from? And they all turned around and looked at me as I'm like eating my food. And they're just like, what are you eating? It's so stinky. Like, how could you eat that? And I just remember feeling so ashamed and closing my Tupperware, putting it away and going home to my mom that day and saying, mom, I don't want you to pack me lunch anymore. One time me and two friends were walking in downtown Salt Lake City. A white man came up to us and started speaking Chinese to us. I don't know how he knows how to speak Chinese. Maybe he was a missionary. I don't know. In perfect English, I said, sir, I'm not Chinese, so I don't understand what you're saying. And he just kept saying it to me. And at that point, I knew it was a jab. The problem is I cannot change how I look. I cannot change the assumptions that those who see me um, have. I've always thought to myself, how do I make myself look more American? I have photos all throughout high school and college of me dyeing my hair blonde. How do I do my makeup so that my eyes look bigger, so that I look more westernized? But I was thinking about how do I change myself as if it was my fault. There is no way to look American. Like being white, blonde hair, blue eyes is not what American looks like. It was that realization that we are a melting pot. And we have all sorts of different hair colors, eye colors, look, shape, weight. It was that realization that helped me get past that. This is Shandara Chun, better known as Chu. Cambodian-American, born and raised in Provo. Chu is a DJ, part of Salt Lake dance and arts community. That's interesting because with everything going on, I realized that I suppressed a lot of my childhood because of it. It's something that I'm coming to grips with the fact that I was very embarrassed and ashamed of my heritage and culture growing up. In Provo, I didn't have anybody that looked like me. I remember hating my skin color. My face was very different from everybody else. And in my school, there was maybe three other Asians in the entire school. It was a challenge. When we would have our ceremonies, we'd show up and dress um, in our Cambodian clothes and You know, we'd go to the temples, but anytime we would stop at a gas station or go into a grocery store, I was very embarrassed. I didn't want people to point and laugh at me. And all I wanted to do was belong. As kids and teenagers, I think that's a a huge thing is feeling like we don't stand out and feeling like we're not outcasts in society. And I hate to use color, but here are the white kids and here are the colored kids. And so there was maybe three or four Asians, uh, some Polynesians. Uh, Hispanics. To tell you the truth, I think maybe like one or two Blacks, and that was it. So it wasn't even like, hey, you're Asian. It was more, you're colored, you're not colored. That's a tough thing that I'm trying to realize and re-remember now, getting close to 40 and finally facing that. I remember the boldness of the kids. Here is Paul again. I can remember one instance in second grade, and kids were chasing us home and throwing rocks at us and shouting at us all the way to the front door to the point where I thought, great, I'm going to be safe. And my mom opens the door. I'm standing next to her. And these kids are standing on our front lawn, continuing to yell and to shout and to throw things. And I just remember that standing out going, wow, you're pretty bold. You know, pulling the eyes and saying chinky, chinky, chong, that was every day trying to make fun of what I ate, asking if I know Kung Fu happens once a year. So I just felt like I never fit. This is Stephanie Wynn Lake again. Like I never fit anywhere. I wasn't what those people consider black enough because I was so Oreo. And then in the Vietnamese culture or the Asian culture, it was just very hard because I was not Asian enough. I have this model in my life that anything that is hard in your life, when it comes to your identity of any kind, the way you look of any kind, 
and how those perceived you around you of any kind, you either can take it, turn around and embrace all of it, or you can try super hard to gear away from it so you can fit in. I already know what it's like to be on the other side. And I'm okay with not being on that side. And so I am very proud to be an Asian African-American woman. I'm not okay that six women got gunned down and hurt. I'm not okay with that. I'm not okay. I'm seriously not okay with that. That is exactly what my family always cautioned us with, being safe. If someone makes fun of you about your race, let it go. Like, that's what we were told. I was told to walk away. Like, I'm 25. I've been told to be meek, be gentle, softness spoken to this happening. Absolutely not. There's no way I'm staying quiet. That's so not okay. When you have children, if you have children, do you think you'll raise them the same way? Do you think you'll tell them to be quiet and gentle and just let it go because of that fear of like just making sure that they're okay? Or do you think you're going to tell them something different? This is such a personal question and it digs, it actually keeps me up at night every day. This conversation, I always tell myself, no matter who I marry, my kids are going to come out looking some other way, not normal in in the United States. And I get scared if they're going to be talked to like how I was talked to as a young kid. Man, I would be really worried for them to try and stick up for themselves. At the same time, I think to myself, I don't want them to act on fear because if they act on fear, then their whole life, they're going to try and gear away from it like I have been. Because I feel like I'm still navigating that. Like, how do I tell people that's offensive without teaching them or just telling them it's offensive? When I was a young father, 9-11 had happened. And here's Chu again. I hated to see the hate in the world. And it's something that I really wanted to change. And now in 2020, 2021, the quiet Asians are now the targets. We've been quiet for so long, and so it's just time to really speak up and not hold my tongue anymore, not cause trouble instead of not wanting to cause trouble. Growing up, we were raised with the fact that don't raise your voice because we are a guest in this country. Like, they can kick us out anytime. It's almost like me coming over to your house. I want to respect your house. So we live with this undermined mentality of, okay, we're here. Thank you for letting us live in your area And then if we speak out, then you're just going to kick us out. That's almost a threat that is used as well, whether, you know, go back home, you know, go back to China. There's lyrics to this song that has been really speaking to me this week. And uh, it's a group called Blue Scholars. They're a hip hop group out of Seattle. The lines say... I rock like Herbie Hancock with prosthetic limbs. Who killed Vincent Chin? Was it them? Was it us? Not giving enough of a mouth to stand That's us being silent. Did we murder him by being complacent? And that was 40 years ago. And, you know, if we were to stand up and rise up back then, bigger, more collectively, you know, not just Asians, but everybody together, would we still be fighting this fight today? Are those choices that I've made wrong to where our children have to fight that fight today? Here is Paul again. I don't know what the right reaction is. I have felt enough empathy. I have felt from people wanting to connect with me. And I have felt very grateful for people saying they want to hear my story. And yet doing of any action is the piece that's missing for me. Having actual change, meaning action, is where I am now. My frustration personally is... There are statements everywhere, inclusion statements by individuals to organizations. And what use are these statements? 
I'm beginning to rethink my pacifist ways. I'm beginning to rethink being civil. I'm beginning to feel like maybe if I stand my ground, the next time I feel threatened by a white person, protect me and my family, that if 50 people like me do that, that will be change and people will wake up. I lived enough places where I've heard people saying, it's a process, Paul, it's a process. And there needs to be education. There needs to be understanding. And I'm sick of the process of hearing. And it's true. It's a true statement. It's a wonderful statement that buys other people in charge the time to do nothing. Oh, you know, we're working on it. Oh, you know, this is really difficult. You know, we're better off than we were yesterday. All those can be true. And yet I have to figure out, tell my kids, yeah, hey, just be careful. Uh, that kid's yelling at us. And I don't know. I look back at all the philosophies and beliefs that I've had and the heroes of my life and thought nonviolence and all that good stuff. And I thought, well, maybe change is violent. The challenge that I feel recently is I, I feel like I am lucky that I've surrounded myself, a community that are so loving, so kind, so generous, so well-read, so educated. When comments or actions happen within that environment, that to me makes me just say, all right, well, there's literally nothing. There's no article that I could send you because you read them all. And yet let's look at where we are and what hasn't changed over the years. The hypocrisy of we want to be inclusive, we want to be diverse, and yet we're not inclusive and we're not diverse. And what do I say when everyone's intent really truly is fantastic and wonderful. And yet I could go home and shake my head and feel like, whatever. Sadly, not only Utah has been experiencing hate crimes toward Asian Americans since the pandemic, but the prejudice has a long history in Utah and is deep rooted. It needs to be addressed as such if we want to eradicate it. So what is a hate crime? I spoke with Salt Lake County District Attorney Sim Gill. The history of hate crime in Utah is really kind of fascinating. Uh, a group of us and different folks who were advocates for this, it really was a labor of 20 years. Uh, it took us 20 years uh, to actually pass legislation that is something we as prosecutors could use. And we had a hate crime statute in name only, uh, but it actually, in effect, was uh, absolutely worthless on the paper that it was written on because it made it almost nearly impossible uh, the way it was structured for us to prosecute. Two years ago, we fi finally passed the law that we as prosecutors can use. We changed it. We call it a victim selection bill because it actually captures that you are targeting a particular victim based on an animus that you may have based on their status as LGBTQ+, uh, based on their race, based on their ethnicity, etc. So the reason it was important was that it allows us to, one, say that it is um, uh, targeting a particular individual and that we can uh, enhance uh, misdemeanor offenses. And the reason it was important, and this is what we have to explain to people, that when you commit a hate crime, it's different than any other crime. Because people say, well, if somebody punches you, uh, you know, that's a crime. Yes, it is. But there are three victims in every hate crime. The person that you target, the injury that you cause to them, but also the, uh, the injury to the community that they belong to because you send a chill of fear that ripples through that community. So the second victim is the community that they belong to. 
And then the third victim is ultimately us. We're in a free society. Uh, we allow this crime to happen without any kind of articulated accountability. So in this last two years, since the law has changed, have there been a lot of prosecutions? Do people report more because they feel like there might be uh, justice served? How has that affected the numbers, the actual cases? That last point that you make is the first one that I want to address, because here's one of our challenges. Since it was not the experience of our community to be able to look to hate crime as a remedy because we didn't have a law. So one of the challenges that we do have, which is also historically true for victims of hate crime, is that getting our people to recognize that you can call 911, talk to your police officer who in the past could not have addressed that issue, can now do so, is the first barrier we want them to overcome. The second thing is, as the law went into effect, our prosecutors certainly are looking much more closely in our screening process, and we have had cases that have come up, but not in the numbers that is actually indicative of the actual problem, because many communities of color are still uh, reluctant to report that and also changing the behavior of law enforcement for them to understand that if you're speaking to an African-American and you should explore a little bit more if they were targeted for that crime, it's the virus that has directed itself on AAPI today. But, you know, last week it was Muslims. It was LGBTQ+. It was our trans brothers and sisters. It's the sexism and, uh, and misogyny uh, exercised against women. And also unique to the Asian American uh, and Pacific Islander community, targeting of women. Women are more likely, 2.3 times more likely in the AAPI community to be harassed than men in the community. And, uh, and so when you see what happened in Atlanta, that is a convergence of sexism and racism uh, and, and misogyny and, and that is occurring over there because that actually captures uh, some of the data that nationally we're seeing in AAPI communities. And even like positive stereotypes. Here is Jenny Hong again. And then kind of looking at the long history of how Asian women are portrayed in the media as like submissive. There's a long history of like exoticism, fetishism, it kind of really stirred up a lot of complicated emotions inside of me. And it had me kind of reflect on my experiences, you know, 17 years working in service, working in restaurants and bars. There's an element, being a female, working in the service industry, there's a little bit of harassment that you're going to have to endure. I don't want to say endure, but that you experience. But the added layer of being an Asian American woman and having men say something in the context of my race, you know, oh, you're like a little China doll or something about the shape of my eyes being exotic or things like that. And it's like, if I don't like those comments, I'm made to feel like I should take that, like being told that I'm exotic as flattery. So I think that was kind of hard for me to unpack and really have to process. No, that's actually, I don't like that. That's not flattering. Do you feel more confident to stand up for yourself, even though those stereotypes still exist? I do now. You know, I was pretty devastated this week really having to process all these things and talking to some of my other Asian American friends and my sister and my mom. I don't want to, there's an anger inside me, but I definitely now feel more compelled to definitely call it out when I see it and stand up for myself. And if I don't like something, if it's inappropriate, just, just to name it in that moment. Virus is exactly the same in all of this. It's just that right now the attention is on AAPI communities. And that is why it's so critical 
that allies speak up for each other because ultimately it's about all of us. And we have to sort of lend that support to those different communities because tomorrow they may be coming for us. And in the past, they have come for us. Anti-Asian hate crime in 16 of America's largest cities increased 145% in 2020. While Utah was not listed as a top state for reports of hate crimes, as last week's letter showed us, Utah is not immune to the anti-Asian hate that's happening across the country. And that's COVID Diaries from Tamrika Katisiashvili here on Radioactive. And Tamrika, that was so good. I mean, I, I always love your COVID Diaries anyway, but man, that it's just heartbreaking. It, you know, my, my heart my heart mourns us as a community. Just, just because, I mean, you know, just so many marginalized people are just, our stories are are so similar in so many different lights. And I just, I, I look forward to the day when we as a group come together and just take back what's rightfully ours. Cause you know, even hearing from my homeboy Chu, you know, I told him earlier, like what, what he, when he was sharing, it just resonates. Like his story is so close to mine growing up in a predominantly white town in Jersey, but, but well done. So good. Thank you, Rishan. It was um, I really enjoyed those conversations. There was uh, much more they all had to say, but I agree with you. The underlying theme is just this idea of what is America, right? And are we this so-called melting pot, which I actually hope to explore with our panelists coming up in a few minutes uh, right here on Roundtable Tuesday edition of Radioactive on KRCL. COVID Diaries, a radioactive special series, is made possible in part by a grant from Utah Humanities. For past episodes in this series, visit krcl.org. Support for KRCL comes from the Ute Land Trust, whose mission is to help heal people, community, and the world around us. More information at utelandtrust.org. Hi, I'm Karen Liu from the County Library with three quick picks about the Asian American experience through Asian writers and filmmakers that you can check out at your local county library. Pick number one is When You Trap a Tiger by Tay Keller. This is a beautifully crafted story that just won the 2021 Newbery Award, as well as the Asian Pacific Award for Children's Literature. When Lily and her family move in with her sick grandmother, a magical tiger straight out of her Halmone's Korean folktales arrive, prompting Lily to unravel a secret family history. Long, long ago, Halmoni stole something from the tigers. Now the tigers want it back. And when one of those tigers offers Lily a deal to return what Halmoni stole in exchange for Halmoni's health, Lily is tempted to accept. Does she have the courage to face a tiger? This is a wonderful exploration of myth and narrative weaving in Korean folklore, and it touches on universal themes of familial love, grief, and finding one's own voice. Pick number two, George Takei's They Called Us Enemy. Now I know many of our middle school children just read Journey to Topaz, and here is a graphic novel that I believe all adults and teens should read. It's really an important moment in American history where we interned Americans of Japanese descent into camps. And you may know about Topaz, Utah and its internment camp. This is George Takei's firsthand account of his childhood years spent in a concentration camp what it was like growing up under legalized racism, 
his mother's hard choices, his father's faith in democracy, and the way those experiences planted the seeds for George Takei's own incredible future. Finally, pick number three. For those of you who enjoyed the film adaptation of Crazy Rich Asians and would like a deeper dive into the Chinese culture and Asian American experience, I recommend the film, The Farewell, directed by Lulu Wang. This 2019 foreign language film received wide acclaim and is a comedy drama following Billy, an Asian American who grapples with traditionalism of her heritage. And she navigates the immigrant experience of being both a part of American and Chinese cultures. Billy reluctantly returns to Changchun to find that although the whole family knows their beloved matriarch, Nai Nai, has been given mere weeks to live, everyone has decided not to tell her. To assure her happiness, they gather under this joyful guise of a pretend wedding, uniting family members scattered among new homes abroad. As Billy navigates a minefield of family expectations and proprieties, she finds there's a lot to learn and to celebrate. Now this film offers us universal themes of the complexity of familial relationships, and it really explores Eastern and Western cultures within a family dynamic. I'm Karen Liu from the County Library, and this has been three quick picks about the Asian American experience. To check out any of my picks, stop by one of our County Library branches in real life today, or visit our website, thecountylibrary.org. The Safe Utah Crisis Chat and Tip Line provides real-time crisis intervention for kids and teens through live chat and a confidential tip program. Licensed clinicians respond to calls and chats with crisis counseling, referral services, and mental health resources. Search for Safe Utah in the App Store for download. Welcome back to Radioactive and Roundtable Tuesdays. I'm Tamrika Khtisiashvili. Coming up at 7, Democracy Now! Vagabond Radio is Barbie at 8. Connor's Late Night Lowdown starts at 10.30. All of our programming and the Radioactive archives may be found online at krcl.org, where you can also see the new Radiothon design, which starts, Radiothon starts Saturday, April 10th. Would love to have your support. So tonight, we're talking about model minority myth, how anti-Asian hate crimes are a thing, even here in Utah, and what we can all do about it. On the panel with us, we have Edmund Fong, who is University of Utah Associate Professor in Ethnic Studies in Political Science Department. Also, Emilio Manuel Camus, OCA Asian Pacific Islander American Advocates of Utah. Uh, Zimin Zhao, Director of Salt Lake County Mayor's Office for New Americans, and Lee Hua Kono, External Vice President of Asian American Student Association. Welcome all to Radioactive. Welcome, welcome, everyone. Us. So excited Hello. to have you all. Great to be a part of this. So as we ask you questions, please feel free to identify your heritage as you see fit, and that's for radio's sake. Um, and uh, let's just jump into it. So my first question, um, it goes out to, I mean, I want to hear from all of you, but maybe I'll start with Dr. Edmund uh, Fonk, who is a University of Utah professor. So hate crimes are not new to America, but I want to talk about some specific characteristics of hate crimes that are directed specifically to AAPI communities. 
well, thank you again for having me here. Uh, yeah, I'm Edmund. I'm uh, the chair of Ethnic Studies Department uh, here at the uh, Utah University of Utah. Well, I think as your wonderful segment on COVID diaries just illustrated that you know one of the distinctive things that we get is this this notion of Asian Americans as that they don't belong here, right? Uh, that they, you know, are, you know, this phrase perpetual foreigners. Um, and so there's that, there's on the one hand, that kind of menacing sort of subversion that, you know, us being here somehow subverts kind of some ideal notion of being American. Um, but then on the other hand, um, that there is this sort of uh, benign sort of model minority kind of pat on the head sort of version uh, that we are, you know, are easy targets, that we are submissive, right? And so there's this a range of different types of, you know, sort of stigma, um, uh, racism, stereotypes against Asian Americans that, you know, is around sort of the notion that somehow we are exotic, we are different, we don't belong here. Uh, we are sort of the new flavor, if you will. Um, and so, yeah, th that, that's the kind of distinctive element that we see uh, with hate crimes towards AAPIs. I, I want to go over to Lehua. I know, you know, I, I personally uh, always look at our students and, and uh, younger younger people as our saviors, if you will. I know that's probably wrong, but I, I still do it. Because, you know, you think like all the lessons that, you know, young kids are just seems to be more aware because, you know, we've been telling them for years, hey, this is a melting pot. Hey, you know, like, you know, everybody, everybody should be treated just and treated fairly. And, and even even as we talk about America, and the United States being a melting pot, I don't know if we if, if our leaders truly believe that. But I know th that is the story that's been fed to our younger generation. So how is it on the campus? How how is it with students? Is it am I just way off topic? Am I way am I way wrong? And I'm, I'm comfortable being wrong, but <laughs> um. No, that's a really good question. And thank you for having me on here. Um, so on campus, we've been completely online for a year now. So it's been really hard as a community to make connections. So within ASA, we've had to do different things like setting up Discord servers and other ways of, of communication. We've been able to do like weekly meetings. So we are still able to have a community on campus, but it's not exactly the same. Um, I guess in like the savior of the younger generation, um, I think we're more outspoken than our elders are because we've just watched the constant um, beat down of them and them being silent for so long. Like since I was a kid, I've seen it. And I always never understood why my parents never said anything. As I grew up, I understood and I'm kind of just over it to be honest with you so that's why it's really important i think the students in college now and the younger generation learn how to speak up to prevent it that's ali huakona who is an external vice president at the asian american student association at the university of utah emilio Camus, i want to go to you um i understand you're involved with this new project that I just briefly read about was Salt Lake Valley, which is providing uh, chaperones for Asian Americans living in fear. Can you tell us just a little bit more about this project? 
Yes, of course. Again, my name is Emilio. I'm the current president for OCA, Asian Pacific Islander American Advocates Utah. We're a local chapter of the National Civil Rights and Advocacy Organization focusing on the uh, social, political, and economic betterment for 100, the 150,000 Asians and Pacific Islanders in the state of Utah. Um, and, I, and I do want to point out, you know, like oftentimes our, our groups are lumped together, Asian and Pacific Islander. Um, and, and when we're talking about, the, you know, this recent rise of uh, attacks, uh, it, it is against the, the Asian folk, uh, the Asian segment of our community. Although, you know, our, our Pacific Islander communities are not immune to the effects of the pandemic. But in terms of uh, the this project uh, that you're mentioning called the Asian Lake Project was founded by Carrie Shane and Itzik Leffler, um, who are, you know, people in the community who are community members who watch the news every night, watch what was happening, noticed uh, that different, uh, you know, people in their communities or different elders were having to buy cans of mace at the store um, just to be able to protect themselves, uh, them checking in with their friends, um, and, and just everyone being worried about not just the elders in the family, but the elders in the community. Um, right now, you know, what we have ongoing is, you know, we're, we're pushing towards uh, for vaccine clinics to make sure our Asian folks are uh, are, are are protected and vaccinated um, to to make sure that we can you know come together again, uh, but we're we're having to tackle this issue not just of you know perhaps misinformation about vaccines or, or disbelief, but also now you know safety at our community clinics and and addressing it. Um, and I think for for me you know seeing this uh, Asian vaccine or sorry the. Asian Link project pop up and organized by community members who really want to care uh, for for anyone regardless of age because this isn't just for our elders anyone in the Asian community can utilize this uh, service to to be chaperoned I think really is is bringing our community together um, you know right now I think we we've had to cap off our volunteers um, to make sure that they go through orientation through training um, and make sure that uh, you know they're understanding that this is this is a service that we're trying to provide in order to make sure that people feel safe again. Um, and, you know, people can volunteer for, for this service at AsianLinkProject.org um, and, and, and sign up as a volunteer or sign up to use a service. And I think it's been really beautiful because um, they were able to uh, partner with, uh, or not partner, learn from um, Compassion Oakland uh, to be able to learn what they were doing there and, and, and utilize it for our communities here in Salt Lake. Because I think that's what we're seeing nationwide is that, you know, uh, let the community's demands uh, across these different com- uh, cities uh, where there are large Asian populations experiencing these Asian attacks is that uh, we're calling on our communities for care, for compassion, for love, and for protection, and making sure that we're looking out for each other. Um, and I think that's the wonderful thing about this project is that we're using it as a place to um, connect people who otherwise would not have met um, in our community. Uh, and, you know, building upon that interconnectedness, I think that is um, really prevalent for our communities here. Nice. I, I want to take the conversation over to you, Z, uh, Zizal, Director of Salt Lake County Mayor's Office for New Americans. I, I personally believe that representation matters. You know, seeing others like yourselves in spaces of, of power, if you will, is important. And so how's it been for you, uh, you know, with, with you being in the government body, you know, making decisions over or helping, I should say, to make decisions. I don't want to speak for you. Uh, but I know for 13 years, you've been helping new Americans settle in is uh, I would assume coming, you know, as a new American, that has to be a breath of fresh air, not just to see only white faces, especially in Utah, where it's always assumed that is only white faces, you know, so how has it been for you? 
Thank you so much, everyone, and thanks um, for allowing me to be a part of this conversation. Like you say, my name is Zinan Sao, and I direct the Office for New Americans for Salt Lake County, Mayor Jenny Wilson. Um, my job, um, I'm tasked to make sure that we have a, a, we build a welcoming environment for everyone who lives here, which include people who are born outside the United States. Uh, we call those New Americans. In Salt Lake County, about 12.7% of our population are foreign born. They come here either as immigrants or they uh, come here as refugees. And, in various forms. I think what's important for this conversation is that as Asian Americans, um, the interconnectedness of immigration to who we are as a population, it dates back all the way back to the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, to the Immigration Act of 1965, where um, the majority community and the policy that we make as a country really affected who we are as Asian Americans here, our journey in this country, and, and whether or not if we were able to come um, and, and the, the various complex that make up a community, in addition to the different ethnicities within us, is that experiences are so different. We have Japanese Americans and Chinese Americans, even in the state of Utah, who's been here for 100, 100 years. Um, and then we have newcomers who are coming in, including myself. I mean, I've been in Utah for 20 can count now, 23 years by actually by the Pacific Islands. Um, uh, and so I you know, consider myself as, uh, as a new American as well, but we also have a newer, newer um, uh, newcomers who are, who are new, newly arrived immigrants. So all aspects of it. And, and what we need to recognize is that the policies that we have made in the past as well as the present affects who we are as a community today. And in my role as the director for New Americans, what we, I, we our office does not provide direct assistance. Although I have, um, I've been really enjoying working with Emilio and the community and putting together vaccine clinics. And that really does bring joy in my life when we're able to um, spend a Sunday and, and see our community and be able to speak with the various individuals. Um, with that being said, what, what I do is I look at the systems level and I look at the policy level. What are we doing right now to make sure that we're building policies that, that are welcoming to everyone? What do we need to do to ensure that the information that we're giving out to the community in, in the beginning, since the beginning of the pandemic, when everything was written in English and in a 26th grade level, how is our community going to be able to understand it? Um, and so really looking at, at those systems and identifying what are the barriers and what are the gaps and what are, what are the barriers for community to access the information, access the resources um, to, make sure, to make sure that we, we are all um, all our communities are safe. And one thing that we have learned through this pandemic is that if, if one is not safe, none of us are safe. And I think that is really, really evident. Um, and so I think what we need to do as a community and, and um, I, you know, contributing to the conversation in terms of the, the hate crimes that is, is happening in the community right now, um, is something that is, I think it's really hard because we have work together for so long to make sure that everyone belongs. And when, when we see incidents, um, when people are being um, persecuted or being, uh, uh, you know, targeted because of how they look like, um, is, is something that we really need to address. And I, I, I think one of the big important issues to bring out, and, and this is um, to a discussion too, in terms of you know, in Utah, we are immune from, from what's happening nationally. And, and this is definitely not true. Um, oftentimes we live in this, you know, so-called bubble that we call 
Basalic Valley or Utah. And what we need to recognize, and the first thing we need to recognize as a community is that we are not immune. There's, there's a, a lot of opportunities for us, for us to address um, um, the, um, you know, the injustice that we have in the community. Z, before I uh, go to my next question, can you share uh, the website for New Americans Office for um, our listeners, please? You're testing me here. <laughs> uh, I think it's www.slco.org um, slash New American. Great. I've been on the website and I love that website. So I wanted to make sure our listeners go to it as well. I want to briefly talk about, so at some point in COVID diaries, Rosie Nguyen, who is the ABC4 anchor, talks about how this idea of blonde, blue-eyed is not what America really looks like. You know, Native Americans lived here way before anyone else came here. Uh, African-Americans were brought here against their will. So I want to unpack this idea of melting pot. Is America really a melting pot? And what does that mean? And potentially this idea of assimilation versus integration. And maybe I'll go to... Um, uh, maybe I'll go to Dr. Edmund Fong again, U of U associate professor. Can you talk about this idea of melting pot? And if you, so I'm an immigrant as well, and I happen to have a problem with that um, saying, but I know people love to use that phrase. How, how do you see America? Do you see us as a melting pot? Huh, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a tough one. I mean, yeah, I mean, that phrase has been around since the, the founding of the country, if not before. Um, so, you know, it, it, it has been around. Um, the idea that this was a place, a land where people could create a new nation, a new people, um, you know, I think has been around for hundreds of years. But, you know, the story of race in American history is one where, you know, that that even though there had that idea of, you know, uh, of a melting pot, you provokes anxiety, fear among different generations of Americans are, are, are around who are the elements in that melting pot that, you know, are not desirable, right, or are, uh, are not ones we want to, you know, we want to dilute or, you know, eliminate or exclude from, you know, the, the cauldron, the, the melting pot. So it's been a kind of, you know, sort of, um, uh, ambivalent relationship right, around the uh, melting pot where, you know, there has been this idea often by people who are espousing, you know, expressly racist ideas who would still hold on to this notion that there's a kind of composite American, uh, even if, you know, hierarchically speaking across American history that tended to be, you know, what we used to call WAS, right, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Um, so it, it's a tangled sort of notion, the melting pot. It's a sort of vexed uh, relationship. It's always been there, um, but always sort of shaded by uh, race, right, in, in different ways. So. Emilio, I, I want to ask you, as somebody as, a, you know, a community advocate, uh, do you feel like a lot of times with marginalized communities almost staying in our own lanes, you know, like Black Lives Matter, you know, like all of our groups are just really... Uh, reflective of of the population has that caused issue like has that caused us to be so aware of our own issues that we're not focusing as a larger picture like 
like, you know, we want to have empathy, but it's like, I, you know, I, I want to have more than just empathy for black people's struggles. You know, I want, I want people to have empathy for more than just what their reflection and what they see in the mirror. But, but staying in your own lane, has that kind of caused some of the issues that we are now dealing with as a country and as a society? I, that's, a, that's a complex question. Um, I think you yourself growing up in a predominantly white uh, space, myself growing up predominantly white um, Salt Lake City, um, I think it, it's complex because I, there's this concept that I had learned, you know, called self, uh, self-segregation self versus self-preservation. Um, and, and that's the part where, you know, I, I try to seek out other folks who look like me to help myself feel safe. And um, I think that's one part. I think the second is, you know, this race, racialization, how how individuals are are perceived as different from other folks. And um, I think both of those play a factor in, you know, how we seek uh, comfort and, and community, while at the same time, you know, maybe it does isolate us away. But I think that's what I'm grateful for our um, our elders in the community, uh, for folks, you know, who have been doing the work for the past 50 to 100 years in the state of Utah. Like Z said, our history as an Asian community, as an Asian Pacific Islander community started 150 years ago. Um, and I think for us, it's just our responsibility to make sure our communities know that and know the relationships, not just between Asians and Pacific Islanders, but uh, with other Native American, Latinx, and, uh, and, and Black African communities here, because um, our elders really work together to make sure, you know, that all um, minoritized, marginalized communities of color were working together because uh, you know, someone was saying earlier that uh, we were facing very similar struggles through the lens of our own communities. But in reality, um, when we look at the bigger picture, you know, what is the cause of that? You know, is, is it income inequality? Is it immigration? Is it all of these different things and making sure that we're understanding really what is the, the, the root of, of the problem? And I think you know, we look towards Asian history, particularly within the state of Utah, and 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 our and our people and migration here really is you know rooted in labor. Uh, we look to you know the Chinese uh, railroad workers, the the Japanese and the Filipino farm workers. Um, I think the first recorded Filipino, Fulhancho Romero, was a came in as a servant um, for uh, for uh, the University of Utah or for. Uh, people who studied at the University of Utah that time during the Philippine-American War. So I think, it, you know, we really uh, need to do a better job, not just within the our communities, but I think as a, as a state and as an institution to make sure that people are understanding these histories to know how interconnected all of our communities are. Um, and I think that's one of the things that, you know, we're, we're trying to address. But again, you know, there's there's so many people coming in. There's so many new faces and and, and things to address that, you know, it kind of gets gets lost in, in, in the in the in the mo- movement of it all. Uh, Lehua Kona, who is uh, the vice president of Asian American Student Association, I want to go to you. When we started the conversation, we kind of talked about um, activism a little bit, right? Like you said, that, you know, enough is enough. And that was kind of the underlying thread throughout the piece, the COVID diaries. Um, In fact, one of the people I interviewed, uh, and I I promised them that I wouldn't use this line. So I'm going to just say it because, you know, we don't know who said it. But basically, this person said, I wish I punched more people in my life that were that way toward me. And knowing this person pretty well, that was a really unusual and actually sad thing to hear, you know, because they were so fed up. And the the point was like, at what point is enough? And like, really, I feel like this person felt fed up. So I guess I want to hear from you as a young person, as, uh, you know, running this association, 
Is that the sentiment uh, on campus? Do you feel like that should be the sentiment? And I'm not talking about punching people, but I'm talking about like real activism, you know, not just talking about inclusion, but actually having some things that have action items attached to them. I guess, what are some of the ways that people listening, whether they are part of a PI community or not, could be involved and do better to try to eradicate this? I think, first of all, the best thing to do is learn your own biases, learn about yourself so you can address it personally, because like everyone grows up with a different background. Right. And there's a lot of different misconceptions for each minority. Um, So unpacking those yourself and having those conversations with yourself to learn more about yourself and where these um, biases are coming from is really important as an individual. Um, on a community level, ASA, we primarily do like weekly meetings and we talk about various topics um, social within social justice. So like we'll talk about my model minority myth. Um, we had one on Asian American women discrimination and sexism and racism, um, topics like that. Um, so that's how we get um, college students to start thinking about these topics more on which anyone in the U can join these. It's not just um, AA or AAPI communities, it can be anyone. But I think the overall consensus um, within ASA, at least, from what I've heard, I think a lot of us are just sick and tired of the oppression and like these microaggressions growing up, like, oh, your English is so good. Yeah, of course it's good. I grew up here, like, (laughs) kind of thing. So yeah, just like personal education, is probably like the best way for people. Obviously be careful because there's a lot of stuff on social media that's wrong. But if you can at least start addressing your own biases and reaching out to like communities like OCA or ASA, um, I think that's one way to start. Professor Fong, before we let you go, I, I wanna, I know you're working on a new book. I, I'd love to hear a little about it. I mean, it's, just hearing, you know, American politics, historical timeline through race issues in America. That sounds serious. Oh, yeah. Thank you for uh, the uh, plug, I suppose. Um, I have been working on a book for a while now. Um, it's sort of titled uh, Race Against Time. And yeah, it's, it's a kind of book that looks from a broad angle lens about how Americans get to tell their own sense of time historically through race, right? That race is an indispensable ingredient. Um, And I think probably the most recent example of that is the whole slogan, make America great again, right? Uh, This idea that somehow the country has gone in a direction that many people are not happy with. We need to turn back the clock in some ways and how that is coded in certain, you know, racial ways, racialized ways, right? Uh, whether it's explicitly, you know, mentioned or not, right? So that's kind of the, the sort of theme that I want to explore across American history. And that's something that it has been there from the very beginning. Thomas Jefferson, right? Talking about, you know, the, the, um, the promise of the country, American exceptionalism at the same time that slavery both enabled, but also, you know, troubled him about what that would mean. Um, you know, going uh, back to, you know, around the Civil War, with the time of racial reckoning after the Civil War, in which sort of this history of the Chinese Exclusion Act is a part of that chapter, and how that sort of opened up a way to revitalize racism 
uh, in this country uh, with the anti-Chinese sentiment in the 1870s and 1880s, which put the Republican Party, the progressive Republican Party at that time on their heels so that they gave up on you know defending african americans in the south and you know the jim crow era is the legacy of that right and so yeah thinking about you know how we don't know how to tell american time where we are where we're going without you know uh drawing upon race right and often we do this in you know um not well uh, articulated or not, you know, kind of conscious, proactive ways. We do it in reactive ways. We talk about how the country is going downwards, and we blame one group or another for that, without confronting, you know, the in and you know uh, endemic issues, right? Uh, for why, you know, we feel like we are at a lack. So, thank you. I, I look forward to reading it. That sounds that sounds really good. Uh, I, and that's our show. But I think before we let them go, we need to make sure we get everybody's dot coms or dot orgs or Facebook lands where we can find you. So, Emilio, where can the, our community of listeners find you? People can find us at OCA Utah on Instagram, O-C-A-U-T-A-H or Facebook.com slash OCA Utah or our website, www.ocautah.org. And people can volunteer or use the services from Asian Link Project at AsianLinkProject.org. And Lahua, where can we find you? Where can we join the group since you said we don't have to be Asian to get down? No, not at all. So our main website is Asa um, um, Our Instagram is asa.uofu. And then our Facebook is facebook.com backslash. Um, I think it's Asa U <laughs> So that's where you guys can find us. Perfect. And Zizao, how can the community get involved? How can we help? Yes, I got the website, um, correct at, a website address is slco.org backwards slash meal dash Americans. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. And Dr. Fong, where can we find you or where can we find that book when it gets dropped? Well, I'm at the U of U uh, at the Depart uh, Division of Ethnic Studies or Political Science, uh, edmund.fong at utah.edu. Um, I've been teaching there for about 13 years now. So, yeah, I'm easy to find. So. Perfect. And that's officially our show, Tamrika. What'd you think? Thank you to all the panelists. Uh, Love the conversation. Um, important conversation, so many different angles, so much more to talk about, you know, um, for example, we didn't address this whole point of like putting all Asian Americans in this uh, one umbrella and whether that's helpful or damaging. So it's conversation that should definitely continue and we will welcome back to uh, all of our panelists so we can we can keep talking right and i i think i'm gonna i'm me personally i'm taking away two things one like dr fong said if we really are a melting pot then we need to do better right now it feels like we are in a pot with all our separate dishes if you will you know and we're not we're not mixed and then like emilio talked about you know our elders did a great job of fighting this fight and we cannot drop the torch in the fourth quarter or the last hour this has to be continued and uh, you know it's up to us you know like i said to lahua earlier it's up to the younger cats like we all need to be a part of this you know we all win together and it sounds like we had an event coming up amelia what'd you say what was going on 
Yes, yeah, so OC Utah is actually co-hosting with ASA at the U of U and along with other Asian Pacific Islander student organizations across the whole state to host our annual Asian Pacific Islander College Student Summit, where we will uh, focus on the recent attack uh, uh, and anti-Asian hate. Um, we'll do an API history timeline nationwide and for locally, as well as offer and that's our show. Thank you, everybody. Next week uh, on the show, it's Radiothon. Able to know what to we do hope you show your support by tuning in and donating or, uh, to your community radio any, station uh, for any of these anti-Asian attacks. Radioactive is a production of Listeners Community Radio of Utah. Executive producer, Laura Jones. Associate producer, Billy Palmer, and I'm Rashawn Leek. And I am Tamrik of Tisiashvili. Till next Roundtable Tuesday, keep an open mind and stay curious. Thank you, Rishan. Thank you, Tamrika. Support for KRCL comes from the Uncomfortable Truth Podcast. Filmmaker Loki Mulholland and freedom writer Luvon Brown ask questions about race and racism in America. The Uncomfortable Truth is available on all podcast streaming apps. One year ago... Our world was flipped upside down. Nearly everything in our lives changed. We all had to find new ways to get through each day and stay in touch with the world around us. Through it all, KRCL was there for us. Filling our ears with the sounds of familiar voices, important community information, and music that uplifted us when we needed it most. It got us through some really hard days. I know it did that for me. And I know it was only possible because of listener support. The KRCL community stepped up and kept this station on the air through some very uncertain times. And this community continues to keep us going. KRCL Spring Radiothon is coming up April 10th, and we're asking our community to help keep homegrown, heartfelt, independent radio on the airwaves here in Utah. Help us get a jump start on the drive and donate today at krcl.org. And thank you.